Please stay with me for the reading of God's word. This is from the end of John 4 and the beginning of John 5. After the two days he departed from Galilee, for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday. At the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. After this, there is a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is a Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man that said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Good morning. There are uh, certain terms in church and Christianity that you just really either don't use in your normal life or if you do use them, they just have like this cloying, sickening sweetness to them. Or they just have like, you know, they've lost all meaning, you know. Um, And I've talked about this recently, maybe in the last year. 
Um, two of them are faith and hope. And again, even saying those, they just feel very empty in my mouth of the sense of just like, yeah, faith and hope. I mean, I think I've compared in the past. It's just like live, laugh, love on your wall, which is just the lamest um, thing that uh, you could uh, ever choose to interior decorate with. Um, but, uh, and I, every time I say that, I, I like know there's someone who's like, oh no. And I'm um, just sorry about that. But um, faith and hope, I think one of the main reasons that we, we find them empty is because A, we don't define them well, and B, we also conflate them together. You know, we think of them as the same word. And I, again, about, I don't know, maybe nine or so months ago, we talked about like, you know, separating these two things out. Because faith is the ability to give myself over to trusting in something. And not just trusting it like I believe it's true, but like I believe it's true enough to make decisions and enough to go towards it that if it's not true, I'm going to falter, I'm going to fail. That I am making life-altering decisions based off of some reality is the capacity for faith. The capacity for hope is different. And this one also is really empty in our world just because we use it like, I hope this happens. I would really like this to happen. I don't know if it will happen, but it would be really great. And so I just, I hope against hope. But hope, in the scriptural terms, is used to talk about something that is certainly coming and the ability to live, or I've said it this way in the past, it is the capacity to live with a certainty of a coming reality that is not yet fulfilled. So I have the ability to know something is coming, and even against evidence that suggests my hope might be ill-founded or ill-placed, I still am filled with the Spirit with a capacity to live as if it is true, and then exercise faith, which is to make real-life decisions or real-life cutting off possibilities, going towards certain possibilities that otherwise would probably be considered foolish. And the reason I bring these two things up today is because you always, it always makes me curious when things in the scriptures are like this, where you have two healing stories put back to back. And there's lots of reasons that scriptures repeat themselves. I mean, this was an oral culture, and so repetition was a way to emphasize and a way to really bring out different nuances. And that's actually what's going on here, I think. There's probably a lot of different things going on in these two stories being held back to back. But in a lot of ways, I saw, as I was re just reflecting and reading and, and studying, that this first healing, the, the royal official son, is specifically leading to this concept of having faith in that Jesus can do this. And then the man, the lame, the crippled man at Bethesda, is reminding us of a hope of a coming reality. And I want to get into that. And so in order to do that, let's take them in turn. Read with me, chapter 4. Verse 43, we'll rehash some of this to get fresh, what we're going to talk about now. After the two days he departed for Galilee, he being Jesus, for Jesus himself had testified with a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. 
for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. And when the man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Pause there with me to just say, this is a really odd response. It seems to be somewhat heartless. It, first of all, we're not exactly clear, based off of the way that John has set the story up, if Jesus is aware that the child is about to die. Uh, it gives us for our context, but the man does not say it to out loud, at least in this story, until after this verse. But still, Jesus has this moment where, similarly to the moment like when you know, there's a woman who comes to him and says, hey, would you, you know, heal my demon-possessed you know, child? And, and Jesus is just like, you know, I haven't come for you because she wasn't a Jew. So he's like, I've only come for the Jews. And, you know, like, you don't get anything right now sort of thing. And then she says, but even the dogs get the scraps from the table. And Jesus looks at her and says, I see great faith in this woman. And so then he heals but at the same time, it's just like, why did he refuse in the first place? I thought Jesus was compassionate. I thought he was this one who was bursting with life. And so why does he hold off here? Again, this is actually another story where this is not a Jew. This is a royal official. This is likely a Roman, though his race is not emphasized like it was with the Samaritan woman in the story just before this. And so he is coming not as a Jew. But I don't even know if it's that Jesus is holding off for that reason, because actually in the, when he says his statement, uh, let's see, where is it? Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. There's a footnote likely in the, your scriptures around the word you, and it's referring to the fact that both you's are said in the plural. So he's, Jesus says this to the man, however, he's also saying this to a larger group, which actually begs the question, it's potential that Jesus is in this moment, that he's in a larger teaching moment, he's addressing a crowd, and that this man comes to him in the midst of his teaching, and then Jesus, in the midst of this, turns this on the larger crowd to say, you all, unless you see a sign, won't believe. And then the man following, in verse 49 says, the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. The language of my child is extremely intimate and personal. The first was just like, this is my son. And then this phrasing of my child in the original language would be like, my small little child. I mean, it really is meant to draw out the humanity of the story of a father that is desperate enough that he hears that Jesus is coming, and at this point, no one really knows if this guy, I mean, he's done some cool things, but we've not seen him heal to this point, and, but regardless, he's like, my son is dying, and so he just goes, and he shows up, and he starts pleading with the man, if you can do anything about this, please heal him, and he's, Jesus has this weird response of just like, yeah, if you don't see signs, you're not going to believe, and he doubles down in and says, please heal my little child. Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. 
And this concept of believe is what we talked about in faith. Because the reality is, is this man came from somewhere else and is begging on behalf of his son. And Jesus gives him something that he has to live with a certain amount of faith in. Go and it will be, it happen that your son lives. And so he has to choose. I'm no longer going to continue to beg and say, no, please tell me, like, you know, give me some sign that it's happened. Give me some way to know, because if I get all the way back there and it hasn't happened, likely he will have passed. And so he has to choose on some level, I'm going to believe that this man can do what he said. And not only, I mean, at this point, healings were not done in long-distance measures. They were by bringing someone to the prophet or the prophet or whoever was doing signs and miracles would then come. They'd say, hey, please come with me. And you see this several times. Jesus is asked to come to people's houses to heal. And this one, he has just simply said, go and it will be done. And the man has to choose. Do I, do I beg him to come with me to really, you know, make sure that this happens? Or do I choose to believe and I choose to make decisions that if they don't work out, my son will die? And it says that the man believed. And as he was going, verse 51, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour which he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever, the fever left him. It's the first time we understand what kind of sickness we're dealing with. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household believed. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. So going back to Jesus's, hey, you're seeking a sign to everyone, and unless you have a sign, you will not believe. To a certain extent, this is like sign-seeking or having your faith confirmed by external things, that this is actually something that happens through the scriptures all the time. It doesn't even necessarily seem to be a negative thing. I mean, earlier, you know, the disciples come to him and say, like, hey, you know, like, they're trying to, like, figure out who he is, and he says, hey, come and see. And there's a level of, like, hey, I want you to come and receive confirmation of your faith by following me, by watching me, by seeing what I do. And it says several times that, you know, throughout the, the Gospels, like, the disciples see Jesus do these things, and they believe. But I think the difference that Jesus is parsing out here, the difference of the heart of this man who does act in faith without seeing, he decides to go without seeing, and is later his faith is confirmed in this sign. And this man who has a proneness to say, okay, his faith, as we see later, is confirmed and grown by a sign he and his whole family believe. Yet he has the proneness to come to Jesus, the proneness to beg to Jesus, the proneness to, yes, maybe he still needs something to truly confirm his faith, but he's giving some level of faith just by showing up. And there's a difference between that and the heart that says, I just, you know, you've got to, like, prove it to me. Like, I am prone to say, if something shows up and just completely shocks and awes me, if I could just see this, then certainly I would believe that this is God's voice for me. Certainly I would believe that, you know, God exists. I mean, that's commonly our culture, or commonly even just something you probably said. Like, man, if I could, if God would just do something, you know, like powerfully miraculous, 
that I could observe, man, that would just like, like, why doesn't God do that and confirm my faith? The reality is, is if you look throughout the whole scriptures, I mean, the Israelites observed miracle after miracle. They had times in which they passed through the Red Sea. They saw the ten plagues come upon the Egyptians, and yet they were spared from the death angel. They would see manna come up from, come from heaven in the wilderness. They would see water come from a rock. They would see Moses go and speak before God on a mountain, and they would follow a pillar of fire and a cloud of smoke. And yet the entire story of the Old Testament is that they still had the capacity to forget and to fade in belief. And I'm pretty sure you and I, if we saw some really amazing thing, there's just always something really quickly that can enter in of like, well, but maybe it's explicable in this other way, or, and is that really what happened? Or there's just a way of whatever certainty you had to decay. I remember a friend of mine uh, when I had a particular moment that um, I went out, I had like a time where I was asking God just these like major questions, and I was just like seeking for like, I was just praying really hard about major life decisions, and a friend was just like, why don't you just go and give God a chance to, like, answer you? Like, just go give him 10 minutes out in the wilderness. And so um, I'm from Nebraska. Wilderness is easy to find and, uh, I, when, when you're there. And so I found wilderness very close to me, and uh, I was there. And I did have this not an audible voice moment, but a very clear impression of what the Spirit was saying and what he was directing. And I even asked for signs and received them, which is a longer story that I don't have time right now. But I remember even in the midst of those things, I went and told my friend, man, I did this. I gave, I went in the wilderness, I sat for 10 minutes, and he, God said, like, I, I feel like God has given me an answer. And she said, hey, make sure you write down your level of certainty in this moment. Because from this moment on, it is going to atrophy and continue to be rotted away. And that was absolutely true. I ended up having to ask God for two more signs, each one like further like confirming. Um, again, I've mentioned this story, I think at other points or like alluded to it. It's really cool. No time. Um, but uh, either way, I love teasing stuff that we can't get to. Really cool, miraculous stuff. Uh, but either way, there is a heart posture that is saying, hey, I want you to give me a sign, and then I will believe. And at the beginning of the reading, I mean, Jesus said, hey, there's a prophet has no authority, he has no capacity in his hometown. Or there's a story, I believe, in Luke where it says Jesus didn't do any miracles amongst his hometown because he just wasn't, hey, there was no faith, there was no belief. And I don't think it's like, okay, Jesus needed the faith to, like, power up. But simply just saying, like, no, I, I, I'm not here to prove something to you that your heart is not desiring to believe. And so if we continually come with this posture of like, yeah, if I see a sign, it'll turn everything for me, good luck with that. Because many people have asked for that, received it. I mean, if you think about your life, most people can think at least at one moment where they have some level of something inexplicable happening. Probably if you think about it now, you're like, it's something I've already kind of like figured out how to explain away, or I've really started to doubt my faith in it at this point. Because that's just the capacity of our hearts. That's just the human condition. If Israel doubted and walked away, had to regularly said, I mean, one of the most consistent 
like things given throughout the Old Testament. Do not fear, of course, we know is number one. One of the second most consistent is remember. Remember this. Do this every year. Do this in remembrance. Remember this reality. And so God asks this man to take a step in faith. And the man responds in faith. And not only does life come to his son, but it says that belief comes to him and his whole family. Which is interesting. First of all, it said earlier that, you know, Jesus says, hey, go and your son will live. The man believes, and then he goes. But then it says he goes, he has a servant meet him. Hey, when did the fever break? It was the seventh hour. Wow, that is the exact moment when Jesus said, go and your son will live. And then it says he and his family believes. Wait a second, I thought he already believed a few verses earlier. Which I think actually just gets to a really relatable, and I'm just grateful that scriptures paint faith and belief in this way, because I think this is actually really relatable to my own faith. Like, there are things or moments where it's like, okay, I'm deciding to believe, and I'm like deciding to do something on faith. And yes, that belief is real, but then maybe something else happens, and I realize it actually was pushing out a lot of unbelief that was still being harbored in my soul. Or maybe I, I step out in great faith one day, and then by the next day, I'm already, again, like all my faith is atrophied, it's all faded away from me. Or in just certain seasons, I'm more prone to doubt than others. And that there is a much more complex relationship with faith than just like, you know, flame on, flame off. And I think that's actually really relatable and uh, really encouraging that that's the way that the scriptures depict it. But either way, faith and life come to his son. It also comes to his whole family, which actually is another picture you see all throughout the scripture. The story of Abraham is, you know, often in Paul will talk about it in Romans, say he believed in faith and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. And one of the things that he's talking about is the moment when Abraham has to go sacrifice his son. God calls him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Isaac was the promised son and miracle baby in uh, Abraham's old age that God said, I'm going to bring and bless all the, world, the, the people through you and through your offspring. And then Isaac shows up. And he is now God's chosen method. And then God says to him, hey, I want you to sacrifice Isaac, which of course now seems like God is like revoking his promise. But yet it says Abraham believes that he's able to do anything, even if he has to bring Isaac back from the dead. And so Abraham goes up the mountain. And in this case, you have the humanity of the story of a father rather than pleading for his son's life is actually the one who is sacrificing it. The last minute, God stops him, provides a ram, and in that moment afterwards, Abraham and Isaac come down off the mountain, and then it starts talking about all these babies that are born and all of this life that bursts out of this man's act of faith. Because the reality is, is when you and I have a moment where we feel the Spirit urging us to move, and we probably, yes, there's times where we get conflated, is that the Spirit, is that my will, is that just, you know, everything... There's all sorts of that. Discerning the voice of the Spirit is not very much so like this, like, you know, you just get good at it, or, you know, there are people, I think, that have some natural gifting and capacity, but it is a lifelong learning and growth and capacity of hearing from the Spirit and Scripture and my impress, the Spirit within me and the Spirit within the body and the circumstances that the Spirit has given me, all of these things working in harmony together. But when you feel that moment of, 
invited to take a step of faith that, again, if you take a step towards this and it is not true, it is going to go bad for you. I mean, I, I've been I was talking to a friend this week who we were just talking about this exact moment where he took a step of faith because he felt the need to confess in a situation that he had otherwise no one was going to find out but just was like continually placed on his soul. I feel like I need to come forward and confess in this situation. And he does, and he's like very worried because it's not probably going to go well. And it kind of doesn't at first. It's kind of everything that he thought it was going to be and feared. But then shortly after that, there was a deeper sense of forgiveness and reconciliation and a deeper sense of peace in the midst of chaotic situations. And it was just like all of this life came bursting out of this decision to move towards what the Spirit was saying in faith. And I know faith, like, I just get uncomfortable about this because it's just like, this means you're, like, just asking me to do the things I don't want to do, which also is, like, kind of a really, you know, twisted view of God that, like, God is always, like, if I don't want to do it, then it's God calling me to it. Maybe sometimes, not always. It's not just, like, if I hate it, that's God. And if I like it, that's the devil. Um, you know, like, they, again, that's just a really twisted view of your father who loves you. But there are times where he is calling you to something that I just, I can't get in my capacity of my limited view why this is life and life to the full, but yet I, I can't deny that I do believe he's calling me to this. Again, this isn't every decision, but this is some decisions. This is some moments. And I can get really like, ah, oh, I don't want to step in. I just, I hate talking about this. I hate talking about it because I'm just, I have the capacity to fail this more than not. Or I just, you know, I fear my ability to really respond in faith. But also it is the reminder that when this invitation comes and when I do step towards it and I failed some, I've stepped towards other, life abounds out of a decision of faith. Life abounds sometimes not only for you, but for people all around you that life comes to the, the community around you. And so, yeah, it's not easy, but it, it, it is a life-giving opportunity that maybe is being presented to you this morning. I don't know. Let, I'll let the Lord do what he is doing on that moment. But we have to go on because we have a second healing story which picks up in verse 5. All right, in chapter 5, verse 1. After there, the feast, uh, after, there, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in, it's interesting, it says Aramaic still, however the footnote says, or Hebrew. It's pretty clear that it's Hebrew, so it's interesting that most translations still say in Aramaic. But it says, in a pool, in Hebrew, called Bethesda. Uh, so is the sheep gate a pool uh, in Hebrew called Bethesda. Which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blame, lime, and paralyzed. And one, man there, uh, and one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Okay, really quickly, uh, we've, through recent archaeological finds, um, there was a point where we had a decent idea where the Pool of Bethesda was, and then through that, there was actually the uncovering of five colonnades, and now there's a lot of certainty that this was the actual pool. Uh, when it says it is by the Sheep Gate, uh, that is referring to the fact that this was where they would lead sheep in for sacrifice, and they would likely cleanse the sheep for sacrifice in this pool. So it had significance on their way to the temple to the Jewish people. 
and had a belief that because they're cleansing the sheep here, there's something powerful to these waters. Simultaneously, it was also a big pagan tradition. Uh, in the god of, oh gosh, can I say this? Asclepius, in the Asclepian. Uh, if you know Greek, I'm sorry, but you know, whatever. Uh, Asclepius uh, was <laughs> the god of healing and medicine. And an Asclepian was a hospital in the pagan tradition. And also through re recent archaeological finds, we have found a temple hospital, a pagan temple hospital by this pool. And so there's two groups, both the Jews and the pagans, who believe in some level that there is something more than meets the eyes to these waters. Now, we also know this. Well, we don't know, but we have a strong suspicion of how the, uh, the water system works. Herod, who uh, his palace is nearby uh, and was the leader of this area, had a water system uh, that was on the other side of Jerusalem that was connected to each water system. And so when he would open the system to give water to the palace, particularly in this pool, the waters would stir. And to them it was this, actually it's interesting too, uh, verse 4, uh, ch uh, really quick, go to chapter 5, verse 4. Uh, if you're reading along in my Bible, it's not there. Uh, it goes from uh, verse 3 to verse 5. What in the world? The Bible has an error in it. No, because the verse numbers aren't really that important, and because most manuscripts now remove half of verse 3 and verse 4 and put it in a footnote, where it says down here in the footnote, some manuscripts say, uh, insert wholly or in part, water, uh, so at the end of 3, it says, waiting for the movement of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down a certain season into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed in whatever disease he had. Again, that is in some manuscripts, but it's not in the most trustworthy manuscripts, and so that's why it's now relegated to a footnote and most likely not a part of the original text. But it was still probably did speak to what the Jews believed, and it was similar to what the pagans believed, the Greeks believed. Uh, again, through their own healing system. And so, Jesus comes to this man, and I just, I love this moment. I just love the humanity again, or just the, I don't know, the compellingness of Jesus that comes to this man who's been there for 38 years, more than most of us have been alive, or at least close to how most of us have been alive. And 38 years, he's been lying here, not been able to get in, and Jesus asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Which some people have interpreted as that whole, like, hey, you know, have you gotten used to this life? And, you know, like, aren't you just making a bunch of excuses? Because the guy then kind of says, like, I try, but no one will get me in. And it's like, do you really want it? Do you want it? You know, and there's this concept of, you know, Jesus, like, trying to, you know, reveal that sometimes we, we like the familiar pain versus the unfamiliar comfort, which I don't think is actually what Jesus is doing. I think Jesus is just trying to reawaken hope in this man. To live with a certainty of a coming reality that has not yet come to pass. And so he asks, hey, do you want to be healed? And the man goes in and he launches into this story, probably one that he's like told like a lot. Like that he just has like the second of like, you know, someone comes up like, what's going on with you? And he just launches in like, hey, you know, like I... I have no one in to bring me in. The waters stir up. I can never get in. I've been here year after year. I mean, one of those ones where it just like sounds like, you know, you can hear like the hopelessness in his voice. And Jesus 
comes to ask the question, just to reintroduce the concept. Hey, do you even, like, can you think of a thought of even being healed anymore? Which, again, I just, I relate to this idea because I think there is a regular capacity for us in different seasons or at different situations to just lose hope in these things that, I mean, Jesus comes and he heals and he says, like, I've come to heal, I've come to push death out, you know, and, and Jesus will talk about prayer and he'll talk about, you know, prayers like going to the, you know, like this person who's knocking on the door in the middle of the night and his neighbor keeps saying, no, go away, but yet because he keeps knocking, the neighbor will eventually give him what he wants and like, if I'm a good father, aren't I much more going to give you what you want? And, and so you, some people have just, you have been praying for something, maybe healing maybe, I don't know, reconciling of a certain relationship, maybe removing of some level of sin, and you've just been praying for something, and you've been praying for it for, like, not just years, but, like, going on decades now. And so much so that it's just, like, this rote level of just, like, you can keep this in your prayers just because you're continuing to, like, you know, try to be faithful and ask, but, like, the reality is, is that you just have very little hope that God is going to do anything about this situation, that he's going to free you from this sin pattern that you've been in, that he's going to heal your parent, your child, your spouse, yourself. And uh, Jesus goes to a man who again had been waiting 38 years and asks him, hey, do you want to be healed? Man gives a story and Jesus says, hey, get up, walk, take your mat. And the man then has, even that moment, he has to take a step of faith in some level of even just to restore hope. I mean, again, when you're coming to the point where you are so jaded, and here's just some random guy, he doesn't know who this is in this moment, he's just started a conversation with him. And he's trying to give you hope and says, get up. I mean, again, you just have to have certain level of faith to like, to try it, and if it doesn't work, is just to be disappointed all over again. But yet he stands, he takes up his mat, and Jesus heals him, without him going into the waters, by the way. That both stories emphasize the fact that Jesus heals by speaking it to be so. In this case, not in the water, but he just says, hey, get up. And the other one, it says, hey, on the moment, the hour that he spoke was the moment the fever left. It's reminding of Genesis when God creates through speaking and he takes chaos and he creates beauty and life and God is now coming as man who sees and speaks and is creating chaos and death into beauty and life. And Jesus, again, for us who are just like, yeah, okay, that's great, you know, but the reality is that Jesus didn't heal everyone. The curse of death still is and was real. And lots of people were not healed that lived in Jesus' time. They didn't know Jesus was there. They never came to Jesus. He healed tons. He didn't heal others. There's sometimes, even as their crowds are like trying to get him to heal, he like sneaks away to be with God because there's some point where he cannot do it anymore. And in that, though, these stories are meant to be given to us to similarly in this man, as it is in us, to reawaken some level of hope in us. That we are, that Jesus comes and he says, hey, these are the first fruits, 
These are just like the beginning crops that shoot up at the beginning of the season before the full harvest is in. And I'm going to go and show the work that I have the authority over the created order. And I am healing death, disease, despair, all things. But in these first fruits, they are meant to point to the time that when all healing will take place. And that there will be a time when there will be no doctors and no antidepressants and no scans and no chemo and no death. And these stories are meant to reawaken in us a capacity to live with certainty of the coming reality that yes, sometimes it really doesn't feel like it. Yes, sometimes I'm really in despair. Yes, sometimes I cannot get out of this pit of depression and I really don't think God's ever going to stop this cycle. Or yes, I really don't. Like, he didn't heal this person. There's some people that I prayed for and objectively they were not healed. And God is continuing to say yes, but I, while not are all healed, yet there is coming a day and I want you to hold on to it. I want you to encourage one another in it. I want you to continue to come back to this capacity to live with certainty of a coming reality that yes, right now it is hell, because hell reigns on earth, but I am going to put it into the pit of fire. I'm going to put wheelchairs. I'm going to put, again, mental health and anxiety and depression and cancer into a pit of fire someday. And it's gone. And in that, again, I just want to really quickly address, I'm not trying to just pave over the person who's just like, yeah, but I'm really wrestling with this right now. Or this is really, you know, like I was talking to a, a couple who, you know, very, I mean, really faithful believers, really just, you know, done a lot of cool things in Indianapolis. And, you know, she's one who just has constant headaches and like migraine level like most days and like most days they're raising their children it's just like you know having to figure out where does she use energy knowing that it's going to lay her out for hours and like you know you could just see them wrestling with the fact of like I know this is going to be healed eventually but it's just like life is really long living with this and it was really honest and it was really powerful and so I'm not trying to glibly look over that but rather I just would say I, I would prayerfully hope that God would continue to meet us in our suffering and in our diseases and in our diagnoses and in our depression and in the things that are still holding fast and are yet to be thrown into the pit. And I have to look to my brothers and sisters who I've seen that have lived lifelong moments of being paralyzed or, or lifelong lives of being paralyzed, not just moments or those who have been older and have gone through more anxiety cycles than I have, or have seen their parents, their spouse, their children die. And while not all of them, I've, I've seen many of them that, it's not like they were just always able to have this impenetrable joy. In fact, all of them will talk about times of just wrestling and being in the pit and wrestling with the length of life, but often they'll talk about in a retrospective, they will look back on those moments and see that God is very much so meeting them and near to them and has not gone anywhere. In fact, is even using this suffering with a redemptive edge to bring life and faith and a capacity to live with certainty of a coming reality.
and it doesn't mean once they get there, they're there all the time. They go back and forth, they waver. But God lovingly and gently uses our suffering for us to know, to reach out, and to find hope in him. And so, I mean, that's my prayer for myself and my suffering. That's my prayer for you. Just really briefly, I have to get to this. We're going to skip out the whole point about the Sabbath just because that's going to come up later in the book and we'll get back to that another time. But just really briefly, we talk about this moment when Jesus sees this man in the temple, which, by the way, is probably the first time he's been to the temple in 38 years, both because if he couldn't get the pool, he probably couldn't get the temple, but secondly, also, he would have been looked down upon because of his paralysis and thought to have sin and therefore would probably not feel welcomed in the temple. And so the first place he goes is the temple, and Jesus finds him there later. And he says, hey, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you, which kind of seems like really crazy karma that we try to preach against a lot, you know, just like, hey, don't, you know, like that's kind of like the classic thing of Jesus that like you believe and people are like, no, Jesus is gracious. But we grew up thinking just like, you know, if you sin, I'm going to kill you with a lightning bolt. Uh, And this is almost seemingly what Jesus is saying. But rather, I think it's it's interesting because the moment where it says he's been lame for 38 years, that's an interesting number because it only appears one time in Scripture, and it is the years that the Israelites wander in the wilderness. We often round it to 48 because there's other, or sorry, 40, because it says 40 oftentimes is just kind of a general number, but there's a point in Deuteronomy where it says, and they wandered for 38 years. So it's interesting. We don't know if this man was someone who is a God-fearer or someone who is prone to be praying in this moment this whole 38 years, but there's at least enough to suggest because the Israelites were wandering for 38 years because they did not step out in faith when God led them to the promised land. They decided to go their own way. They did not listen to his voice. That that's what this is reflecting on this man as well. And Jesus comes to him and says, first of all, Jesus sought this man out to heal him when he had no proneness to go towards him, which is a really beautiful reality of the gospel that we proclaim, is just like all of you, you didn't, God didn't come to you because you had figured it out or you had been really nice or because you had finally prayed and asked hard enough, but because he came to you when you had no proneness to come to him and he sought you out and he said, do you want to get healed? And so Jesus does that to this guy and he then, though, does come and remind him and speaks to him. Hey, if you, if you receive this grace of healing, which is great, but then go and continue to reject me, continue to reject the life. I mean, John's bringing us back to the beginning of the book. Those who received him found life, but there were those who rejected him. And he's putting this back, almost back to us, of just like saying to this man, hey, don't reject me now. Because... There is a far worse experiential hell than being 38 years of lame by the pool. And so I've freed you from this. This is, I've freed you for something far greater. And it's not this, I mean, then we always hear that just like, okay, so that means when I am saved, yes, we often will say, we're saved by grace alone, not by any works of our own so that no one may boast. Praise Jesus. But then I better go and show that I am worthy of it. I better go and, like, not sin anymore so that, you know, and the fact that I do sin or the fact that I still wrestle is, you know, further confirmation that I regularly flow back and not choose life and am I even in the kingdom. 
And I was saying, look, it's, it's not saying you have to prove yourself worthy. There's many times in the scripture that is going to put to rest that idea. But it's simply pointing to the capacity in our hearts to be sought out and given grace, to receive some level of healing, some level of peace, some level of the experience of God, but yet to still just never move towards receiving it, never moving towards trusting it, of having faith to trust in this reality, of having a hope to live with certainty of the capacity, or the capacity to live with certainty of the coming reality, and to just want something else. And I'm not saying to those who are attempting to follow Jesus and struggling to grow in your sin that you need to be this constant fear of if I'm accepted today or forgiven today. But rather there's this tension that we hold that you don't prove yourself in the family of God. You don't prove yourself worthy of grace. That would therefore no longer be defined as grace. But as Paul says, a wage, something you earn. But those who receive grace and life, but choose not to actually receive it, choose not to yearn towards life in an imperfect way, yes, and up and down and a failing and moving towards, or they just choose something else, are those who have chosen to experience him but yet not receive and if so if you're one who's just like man these things always freak me out because of like where am i have i proven myself simply by the fact that you're here i would just invite you keep keep going keep in community keep holding on keep confessing keep repenting keep praying keep Moving towards, in moments, yes, you'll fail with a million faith decisions. Yes, you'll be hopeless and despairing a million times. So have and do I, so have and do every mature brother or sister that I have talked to with an in-depth knowledge of them. And it's just as simple as God saying, like, hey, those who received me, those who just have, just keep coming and keep holding fast. Even when they let go, they grasp on again. Even when they find themselves in a place where they want to reject community, they come closer to it. They just come and they make themselves, again, yes, they realize they have been running and they simply return. They turn back again and again, repentance being the capacity, just turn back around. So there's so many of us that, yeah, whether you feel like you've done that this week or not, that's part of the joy of why we take communion every week, because it is the regular celebration and reminder that, hey, I'm showing up again, and I'm just choosing to keep going. I'm choosing to stop sinning, to try again, to repent again, seeing that over decades, he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And sometimes it's it's not a year-over-year year comparison that's very helpful. It is a decade-over-decade. Decade. And so I invite you, if you are a believer, if you are one who is just simply, again, however you come in, but are simply just holding to Jesus yet again, 
then I invite you to come and take communion with us. The way we do communion is by having stations that will be up here in just a moment where you can tear a piece of the bread and dip it in the cup and a gluten-free station in the middle. And we ask you to come down center aisle or turn down side aisle. And let this just be a moment, again, whether you have been any time and season of peace and joy or you have been in a season of doubt and failure, to come and to receive and to keep going. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for your sweetness of your voice to be heard in your question of do you want to be healed? And Lord, I pray um, for us to see your compassion in that, to see your um, seeking us out in that, and to hear in that, yes, that there is much to still struggle to hope in. But the fact is, these stories and the stories that I'm sure if a lot of us started talking, we could start piling up, are just the beginning of the first fruits of a coming reality that you are certainly bringing to pass. And we simply want to continue to hold on to that, be held by you in that, be held together by the body in that. And so, Lord, I pray for um, you to bless us with faith and hope, not as empty cloying terms, but as a receiving trust and as a capacity to live a certainty of this coming reality. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.